and welcome to episode 161 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav. What's up, Shane? Happy, happy Valentine's Day, my friend. Happy it's, Valentine's Day. I love you, Shane. Uh, Stan, you know, I don't say this enough, but I love you. And you know, just like Mariah Carey said... All I want for Valentine's Day is the dive down. God, it's really one of her timeless classics, isn't it? Timeless, baby. Do you guys want me to Listen. go and come back in like ten minutes or something when you're done? Or well, no, Dave, because I got I gotta tell you, I love you too. Oh, yeah, we love you, Dave. <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> made my day. <laughs> the that was so much cuter than the cards that my kids gave me and. The car that yeah. my wife gave me with a bow in the driveway, and oh man, is it Alexis? Get out of Alexis. Alexis. Yeah, Alexis sponsor our podcast. We will put a bow on something for you if you want, Alexis. You know how much those bo- car bows cost? <laughs> Hundreds of dollars. <laughs> they're like four hundred dollars. No, you, they're not. Yeah, you can buy them from dealerships, right? They're absurdly expensive. They're just prohibitively the expensive. Yeah, I kind of just want to get the bow and just like put it on something not car ish. Just go to a car dealership and be like, I, you know, I don't want the car, but I do just want the bow. Yeah, can I put this bow on a bunch of old wood that we just tore out of our house that we're remodeling and are about to burn against city code? Can I put this on my, my 2013 Xterra? It's a gift from my wife. Can I put this on the chicken I just roasted for my family? You know what, Dive Down listeners? Happy Valentine's Day to you as well. We love you, too. And that's why I'm going to tell you right now that... On this week's show, we've got three modern tournaments to break down featuring the now-legal Neon Dynasty. You heard it here first. Then we are diving into some new artifacts ourselves as we share our own experiences playing with various brews slash innovations across formats that have been using artifacts from Neon Dynasty and maybe some other cards as well. Are we going multi-format again this week? Oh, this is multi-format. And Stan, did you, I think you might have missed the, the three most important words. Sleeve, believe, and heave. I do get 25 cents every time someone says uh, those words. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about playing blue-white Hammer Time in Modern and giving it a big old heave because it's not a good deck. Hammer isn't a good card. Sigarda's Aid is draft chaff. Bad. All right. Before all that, though, let's housekeep. Shout out to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation. We've got Ass. 0805. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's A-S-S-E. Os 0805. I don't know, man. You know, they're always trying to do that stuff in the in the crosswords. Yeah. They're always trying to make you spell A-S-S. And like, and they're always doing that. And I'm just like, oh, I see what you're doing there. You're very clever. Also, Chris M, another new patron in the nation. Thank you both for joining. Alas, there are no increased tiers or new reviews this week, but I'm sure there will be many more of both next week when people hear this cry for help. It's a call to action, they say. A CTA. Give give people a CTA, and the CTA this week is write a review. That'll be fun. That'll be a fun thing to do with all your free time out there, listeners. If you're listening to us on your Apple iPhone or even on your Macintosh computer, you can leave a review that will appear in the podcast app service and people will see it and it'll make us appear higher in like 
top 10 best podcasts in America lists. Yeah, we're always we're always on like 11. So, yeah. <laughs> we need we need that bump up to uh, bump to 10. Help us um, defeat Smartless and or the yeah. latest season of Serial if you can. Just get us into that top 10. We want to do better than Dolly Parton's America which is somehow still at the top of the list as well. Is it really? I don't know. I mean, everyone loves Dolly. Uh, Kilgore, Jason, is asking in the chat for a deck box update. And you know what the update is? It's going to it's gonna be a long time. Literal slow boats. They, ca- they cashed our check. They cashed, the fir- they cashed a check. That is the update. They took our money. Yeah, so the money is in their hands. The money is gone. It's in Legion's hands, and now it's on public record. So they cannot back out now. I mean, really, they took your money, everybody. Yeah. That's a good point. They took the patron's money. I think it's in Germany now. So have they converted it to Kroner? <laughs> they use the euro in Germany. It's, and it was the Deutschmark. It was before Deutschmark, that. yeah. The Deutschmark? Yeah. That means the German mark. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So if you want to get in, you want to get those deck boxes, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down. Number of options for swag things. You can get uh, stickers, tokens, pins, Deck boxes when they arrive, maybe like in April, May. I was going to say, I still expect it to be April is what the sound of it. They haven't given us a timing to let us know it was going to be later than what they said. And what they said was basically March or April. So, man, that's here before we know it. You know what? Seriously. A lot of stuff will have happened since we submitted those deck boxes. I got more gray hair. I quit my job. By the way, listeners, I quit my job a couple weeks ago. More you're going to get later. a new job. You're not going to be like a pro content creator. Uh, I'm just doing this podcast now. Do you, you knew that, right? Sweet. Well, that's really good, actually. Uh, you know what would be really cool? I don't think it's going to happen, but it's like if we, can, if I can take them to uh, SCG Con in Dallas, which I fully plan on going to in April 10th, but I'm, I think that's ambitious. So we'll see. Fingers crossed. We really got to do a shipment of stuff. Oh yeah, for sure. I think we have some we have some play mats going out soon. We have we have a number of of things that are owed to y'all. So thanks for your patience, and uh, yeah, bear with us. We're also brought to you by Manatraders, manatraders.com. Use sign up code the dive down 2022, get 15% off your first two months. We know a lot of you have been checking out Manatraders, have been joining using our code. We appreciate that. But if you haven't, if you've thought about joining the world of Magic the Gathering online, you've thought about, hey, how am I going to afford all these cards? When there's so many, I don't want to have to go back and forth to the bots. That's what Mana Traders does for you. You just give them a nice list of cards. They send them to you. And then you have them for a set length of time. And in fact, it's actually not set because I had like a deck for like three weeks and they never even asked me back for it. So thanks, Mana Traders, for being very patient with me. And uh, yeah, the uh, sign up code, the dive down 2022, 50% off two months. I ran in a deck this weekend and and uh to play and they had uh i still had mono blue spirits and pioneer in my account and i didn't even realize it they didn't care they were like nobody wants cemetery illuminator you're good you're good you got our four copies dave yep was that from the episode with dom uh, like, i don't three weeks remember. ago it was from a while ago yikes i've been busy did i mention i've had some, some going through some life changes right now dude you quit your job you're aren't you unemployed now Nah, not yet. All right, let's hop over to the breakdown. I have done a little bit of analysis, three tournaments. I'm mostly going to focus on some metagame trends and top eights from them. And although there was SCG Con in Philadelphia, where we got, you know, full lists for a lot of decks via MTG Melee, unfortunately, as cards do they thing, Neon Dynasty was not legal on paper this weekend. 
So for that reason, while we looked at those tournaments, we're not really going to focus on them because we want to talk about what Neon Dynasty is doing to modern in particular. So that's why today I'm mostly focusing on the MTGO results from the weekend. And we had two challenges and a PTQ. And I'm going to look Sweet. at all three of them. Starting with the Saturday Modern Challenge. The most popular deck on Saturday was Hammer Time with seven copies. And now is far and away the most popular deck. The next most popular, Blink, only had three copies. And there's just a lot of threes and twos and ones within the top 32. So even though just a week or two prior, we've been talking about how in January, Hammer Time's prevalence and perhaps success rate had kind of gone down in the first month of the year. It really picked back up in this particular tournament. And perhaps part of that has to do with some of the new innovations that they've picked up from Neon Dynasty. As a result, Esper Sentinel was tied with Ragavan for the most popular card in the top 32. Whoa, they, okay. They, they each appeared 40 times. My goodness. Expressive Iteration was the most played spell, however. 36 copies of that. Springleaf Drum in second place, though, with 33 copies. Springleaf Drum. Springleaf Drum. Guys, how? react. How can Notably that? OP card. I was just thinking about that. That's that's purely thanks to Hammer, right? Purely, is that, yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah, because I was I can't even remember that Hammer played Springleaf Drum, but yes, it do. Yes, it does. Yeah, that's how they make mana from their creatures. I, so Affinity was also this prevalent. Time. And like also a preview for what I'm going to be talking about in the dive down as well. In addition to Hammer, there were a couple of blue-white Affinity decks that also emerged because of the new set. So I think in, in combination, Hammer and Affinity help make Springleaf Drum really popular. Kind of the same way that Grixis Shadow and Murktide make Ragavan the most popular card. Mm-hmm. The winner of Saturday's tournament was Earth Stripe on a very stock list of Grixis Shadow. Nothing really to say here. In second this place, deck is, is this deck is just really hanging on, just continuing to win. Why play other things when you have Grixis Death Shadow? I mean, unless you don't like playing Death Shadow decks. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I like some of the other popular strategies in the format, including perhaps the second place finisher, Happy Sandwich on Blue White Hammer. Blue White? Azorius Hammer. And That's a color? It is. And in fact, this is one of the decks that I played in the dive down, but I will talk about Happy Sandwich's list because they did have a few new additions, including one copy of the Reality Chip, one copy of Lion Sash, and a copy of Igonjo. Which is kind of the new, it's the new white legendary land. <laughs> hey, that's that's like it's it's so free. I, I, I told you I thought it was gonna be okay, even though just because it was free. Yeah, Iganjo is a pretty cool card. I'm gonna reserve some of my experiences playing with it until we get into the dive down, so stay tuned for that. That's we call that a tease in the business, Stan. In third place, Pete team on Amulet Titan, running two copies of Beseju. And this was the Cultivator Colossus version. No Karns in this list. Fourth place, STN on four-color Omnath. Also a stock list. No new cards that I noticed. Who needs them? In fifth place, Jeji on Grixis Midrange. This is like Shadowless Shadow, but it's not that Grixis control deck that we see JSP Gendrick playing sometimes. Instead, this is playing some main tech, Turok Dread Canters, Snapcaster Mage, and an extra Kroxa in place of the Shadow in particular. Yeah, this is like one of those, those like shortly, short-lived... Grixis Luris list that we saw before kind of just pivoted into the into old Grixis Death Shadow style. I think we we saw it's just one of those another variants of Luris style piles. Yeah, what's interesting to me here is that it's so similar to the Shadow deck that it's still playing a couple copies of Dress Down Main, since that does at least pair well with Kroxa, especially on turn four, makes you 
be able to cast a Crocsa from hand for two mana, in addition to the two mana you spend on Dress Down. But otherwise, no new cards in this deck from Neon Dynasty. All right, here's a fun addition. Sixth place, Juju Bean, 2004 on Heliod Company. Wow, are you kidding me? I wouldn't, I wouldn't lie. AKA Selesnia Life Gain on MTG Goldfish. They too had a new card. They were playing one copy of Buseju, but otherwise nothing from Neon Dynasty going on here. Just Heliod Company combo stuff. Exactly as, as you might expect it. I don't expect it at all, to be honest right now, but okay. Maybe that's, maybe that's the draw. Here's my thinking. Here's my thinking. Perhaps it has a decent matchup against Hammer, where against something like Grixis Shadow or Murktide, if those were everywhere and it had to fight through like Furies and Unholy Heats, I don't think Heliot Company would do particularly well. But if they're playing against like a bunch of amulets and non-elemental decks like Hammer Time or even Affinity for that matter, maybe they don't have to slog through a ton of main deck cheap removal that makes comboing off that much harder. It's, it's kind of my educated guess on why we're seeing it now after it being essentially dormant for months. Yeah, I mean, the big thing will be if we see it again, right? Let's see if someone else gives another try. Let's see if Juju, you know, Juju being very well-known Zoomer player, right? We'll see if they bring it back. Yeah. Is that is that Generation Z? I think maybe. I mean, 2004 puts to them at what? Like 22? 18? What's my, how's math work? I don't know. V18. Are people born in 2004, 18 years old? Yes. Oh my God. Cool. Congratulations, Juju Bean. You did it. All right. Here's another fun addition for you guys in seventh place. Five color humans. Fleur Spar playing that one. And this actually had a number of new includes, including four copies of Secluded Courtyard, which is the unclaimed territory that you can also tap for activated abilities. Okay. Can we just talk how quickly... So everyone's everyone. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I imagine you all out there listen to a lot of podcasts. Everyone was like, "Yeah, we're putting Secluded Courtyard on our list because it's a gimme. We're gonna see it. People will play it. It'll be in some kind of tribal deck. Maybe it'll help out humans, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. It's just like, "Hey, we know we're gonna see it immediately. First weekend, top eight, Secluded Courtyard back in humans. Uh, is it single handedly making humans a lot better? Probably not." But why not? Someone was someone was inspired to try humans and realized maybe it still got it. Abzan Falconer, rise up. That's what's making it a lot better, though. Oh, it's not just that. It's also Upriser Renegade. Rise up, Upriser. Three copies of Upriser Renegade. This is one in a red for a 1-3 human samurai. And it has the text, Upriser Renegade gets plus two plus zero for each other modified creature you control. So what does modified mean? This, oh, man. This, this is a creature that has an aura attached to it or an equipment attached to it or plus one, plus one, and, and probably any counters, right? Like, Hold plus, on. Plus two, plus oh for each other modified creature. Are you just saying this now, Shane? Each other. So this is this could be like what? Like a 15-3 like a, a, a pretty easily or something like that. I mean. And then you give it flying with the falconer. Oh, my gosh. Exactly. The red Tarmogoyf. It's it's probably has more than three toughness too, because what's happening here is that it's pairing with Thalia's lieutenant, which puts a one-one counter on each other human when that enters the battlefield. So that's what's triggering no, that all would these, never happen. All the modified abilities. And then Abzan Falconer, for those who weren't playing in Cons of Tarkir days, is two and a white. Even if you were. <laughs> yeah. Uh Falconer, two and a white for a two-three human soldier without last. For a single white, 
and Outlast is pay a white tap, put a 1-1 counter on this creature. But it also says each creature you control with a plus 1, plus 1 counter on it has flying. So the wombo combo here is you play a Thalia's Lieutenant, then you play the Falconer, everyone has flying, and your Uprising Renegade is like doming your opponent for a million damage. This is sweet. I love it. Flying is still the best ability proven by including Absent Falconer at this point in time. Okay, interesting things to note of humans right now is there are none of the the illusion creature whose name is completely escaping me. Phantasmal image. Phantasmal image, yeah, none of those. Uh, also, embarrassingly, I was just thinking about how Imperial Recruiter was like the biggest flop from MH2, right? And then it comes back to show me, you know what, Shane? I'm still here. I'm costing two and a red in humans, but I'm still getting things that you need. Well, it searches up. Doesn't it search up both Absent Falconer and Upriser Renegade? Get Falconer. Oh, it doesn't Does get, Falconer. get Falconer. It, it gets a lot of important things, though. Like, it gets your Lieutenant. It gets your Thalia. Of course, it gets uh, Torak, which is cool. Late game, because, you know, of course, you can cast it as a four drop. It absolutely does get Falconer because it's creature with power two or less, and Falconer is a two three. Oh, I thought for whatever reason I thought it was mana value. So yes, no, it does get Falconer, which is which is super sick. Yeah. yeah, that's why you get to do stuff like that in this. Thanks to Imperial Recruiter, humans now a combo deck basically. Yeah, I, well, I humans think we tier call, one. We call it a toolbox deck around here. I think Stan. Oh, is a toolbox not a combo for handy people? Mm, true. Finally, eighth place. Day blocks on grinding breach combo. No new cards in this one, which I actually found kind of impressive because this is an artifact combo set, but you know, Moonsnare prototype didn't make the cut. No new other art of cheap artifacts made the cut in grinding breach combo. Maybe that's just because this particular copy of the deck was a little slow to innovate. This is a deck that we're starting to see like trickle in these top eights, top 16s more and more frequently. It's often jiggly wiggly. Mm-hmm. Rune from um, the Serum Visions podcast, but now it's starting to permeate among other players, and I think this is a nice artifact combo deck to keep an eye on. Maybe for old fans of KCI. Oof, I do not ever want to see this deck, but hey, I'm glad that it makes other people happy. Alright, let's get into the Sunday Modern Challenge. Most played deck, again, Hammer Time. Six copies of that in the top 32. Followed pretty closely by Grixis Shadow and Merktide. Both of those appeared Four times as well as four color Omnath appeared four times as two. And Living End appeared three times. So pretty big showing for that deck. Again, most played cards were Ragavan and Expressive Iteration. Back to normal, I suppose. First place, The Lie on a very stock version of Black White Hammer. No new cards. Mm-hmm. Second place, Danker on Is It Delver. Mm. No, come on. Yeah, also no new cards. And and to me, this really just looks like the Merktide deck with the primary swap of Ragavan for Delver. I mean, Delver for Ragavan? Delver swapping with Ragavan. That seems definitely worse. The cantrip suite is a little different, but like so much of the package is the same. Interesting. Okay. I mean, God, Shane thinks every... it's worse, but the second place finisher is Danker. Danker showed me. Have I got second place in a modern challenge? No. I've always said Shane is cool, but... The second place finisher is Danker. <laughs> One of those jokes have to work. I hate when you say that. I hate <laughs> when you say that. It just, it irks me so much. All right, moving on. Third place, Beekeeper on a stock version of Crashing Footfalls. A good deck. Please, it's, it's URG. My personal opinion. Yeah, Teamer. URG. Teamer Crashcade. Here's some spice. Fourth place, Scipios on Shane's all-time favorite modern deck. Teamer Assault Loam. 
Oh yeah, perfect. No. Let's no. do this. What's going on in this world? There's some there's some real spice in these tournaments. I mean, there was only six rounds of Swiss, so mm. how dare you? Anything could happen. All right, so this deck has a couple copies of Busaju. Just really briefly, what is this deck doing? It's got four run and six. It's got three seismic assault, three slogurk, the over slime. I'm not gonna read that. It is a card from the Innistrad sets, a couple of Life of the Loam, and that's the core package of cards that care about lands in your graveyard, okay? But it also has the, what I would say is maybe the essential modern mid-range package of Ragavan, Dragon Range Channeler, Tarmogoyf, Unholy Heat, Expressive Iteration, and Mishra's Bobble. Yeah, it's just a little package that is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven separate cards, so times four, yeah. so 28, so half of your deck is an essential package that for spice you could throw in, uh, what's the card again? Seismic Assault? Yeah. And, and Slogurk. Dave, Shane, show me the lie. I mean, I don't There's think you're wrong. One. Not a one. That's it. What if we're in a world where people can play those 28 cards, like a 4X of those seven cards, and just put whatever they want in the other seven cards and, and come in fourth in a challenge? Like, is that you what's mean, going you on You mean Slogurk's one of the seven, right? No, not one of the... <laughs> Slogurk is the eighth card. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a deck that I think is probably doing a lot with Renin Six more than anything. Just be able to, like buy back Peseju, use your all of your lands as removal spells, but then like still count on them for mana later. Mm-hmm. I think it's fun. You know what it is? Maybe it's not good, but it's probably fun. And maybe it is good. And Scipio's locked into something before everyone else did. Yeah, maybe. It'll be fun to see if this sticks around. I know Shane's going to want to play it a lot. Fifth place, Biednarchio on Blue White Hammer. Once again, featuring the same. This is almost the same list, right? It's close. Basically, yeah. The the Lion Slash and uh, Reality Chip here, and they even have an extra chip in the sideboard. Oh, notably, they're running two Core Outfitter, which I appreciate. Sixth place, Bob49 on Bob49.deck, perhaps commonly known as Charbelcher. They also have a new addition here. They've got three March of Reckless Joy, which is the X Red Instant from Neon Dynasty. Exile the top X cards of your library. You may play up to two of those cards until the end of your next turn. And it has that clause where if you pitch red cards to it, it reduces the cost of X by two. One of, one of my favorite picks from, from Sweet. Neon Dynasty. Cool. I, I like that they just did not fear the Boseju. You know, I, I, heard, I even heard of people being like, well, maybe, maybe Belcher will run a basic land now for fear of Boseju. <laughs> but Bob forty nine was like, uh, I don't, I don't think so, Tim. Yeah, you know, the fact that you can play these cards until your next turn, I think, is kind of incredible. And I wonder if that means that light at the stage you, is also incredible. No, not exactly. But I wonder if you use your Iron Crag feet to make seven mana, cast March, even if you don't have Charbelcher, and then you just look at the next seven cards, and you'll probably find either Charbelcher or Recross the Paths. And be able to go off a turn later. Yeah, I mean, I'm not good enough at Belcher to know exactly how this worked out for Bob, you know what I mean? But there's definitely always that plan in this deck. Because they also used to play Reforge the Soul, and maybe they still are playing Reforge the Soul for a similar kind of thing. Where it's like, okay, if I can't win this turn, I'm going to set myself up to win the next turn. So maybe that's it. I mean, this also keeps cards safe from things like Thoughtseize and keeps it safe from, you know manipulation at the top of your deck by mill or something weird like that some i don't know maybe there's some fringe benefits there too all right seventh place we got x-whale on black white hammer 
also featuring one of Lion Sash and Anai Ganjo. Again, I will reserve my thoughts on Lion Sash in the dive down. Yeah, unfortunately, I was checking Will's uh, Will Kruger his Twitter, and he doesn't. He says that his his sample size for Iganjo is that it's too small to be meaningful, and didn't say anything about Lion Sash. So unfortunately, we cannot pick this awesome competitor's brain on these two cards just yet. Well, we have I'm another right awesome here. competitor to pick right here. Shane, can you see me? No, Shane, look over here. Oh, it's an audio meeting. They can't see me looking around like John Travolta in that GIF. Shane. Shane oh, right Stanislav. Here. I mean, you are actually a good competitor, so. All right. Last. Let's talk more about that later. I mean, last are we going to talk about that later? Wait, wait. Are we going to talk about the fact that Stanislav 4 would a prelim this week and was at the top of the list? Is that is that a spoiler for later in the episode? Is that Maybe. good? That's okay. Good. I mean, you went 4-0. I mean, that's that's like a good FNM. You, you've never done that? I've gone 4-0 at FNM. That's the same thing. Well, it's not in the notes, but maybe we can talk about it later if there's time. I I just want to mention the eighth place deck in this Sunday challenge list is Sodek on Living End playing two copies of Otawara Soaring City, one main, one side. That that was the thing that I wanted to mention. Very cool. I'm excited to play that card too. I haven't had a chance yet, but I think it's I think it's a good card. Shane, what is what is up with Dave? Just like every new card being like, oh, I called it. Oh, didn't I say this card would be good? Not, I, I, I didn't. Do, I didn't say that about that one. That's a that's a we Dave like called it effect. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Last last but not least, let's talk about the modern PTQ. We only have the top sixteen available for this one, so our sample size a little smaller. But Ragavan still the most played card. Twenty four copies. Followed by Misha's Bobble with 22. Also, the way the decks were categorized in Goldfish was by colors. So it's just like a bunch of UBRGs, blahs, blahs, blahs. So I can't even say what the most played deck was just yet. Maybe by the time this episode comes up, the data will be cleared out. But in any case, the winner going to the Pro Tour is Punt Then Wine playing Amulet Titan. Featuring three Buseju main and another one in the side. Wow, I knew that card was going to be good too. Wow, what a record I have, guys. Seriously, it looks like Punt Then Wine was primarily just cutting other lands. I guess that's not surprising. No Caverns main, but a full playset on the sideboard. No Colony Gardens main, one on the sideboard. Playing two Cultivator Colossus in the list. No Karns here. Interesting. Puthen Wine is, of course, super well-known on Amulet, so you got to figure that they've really thought about the decisions they made, the cards to cut, why they're in the board, and why they're on Cultivator over Karn, for sure. No, Besage is really good. I had a couple of modern matches over the weekend where you cast a Blood Moon, an opponent has a green mana up, and you just have to cross your fingers because it's like just that easy to answer now. Second place, Rotterall, stock version of Black White Hammer. No new cards. <laughs> I don't care about these new cards. I, I have this rented from Mana Traders, and I'm not returning it and renting it back out. Exactly. Different story for the third place, Young Toast on Blue White Hammer. Once again, we got Lion Sash and Reality Chip. I mean, that information spread quickly. Just play one of each in all of these Blue White Hammer decks, and we got multiple Blue White Hammer decks across the top eights. Yeah, and Young Toast is running a couple of Blacksmith's skill main with a you know target permanent gets hexproof and indestructible. I, I feel like in, in today's meta... In this meta, this economy, blacksmith skill is pretty good. I'm surprised it's not being seen more. I don't even see it that often in sideboards, which is kind of surprising because it is a pretty powerful card. And also pumps. But, you know, there's only so many cards you have space for. Fourth place, 
Kamata Man, Ungrix's Shadow, looking pretty stock. Same as the fifth place Merktide deck played by Bruno Caleb. No new cards there. Sixth place Mental Misstep, Unfour Color Blink, featuring two Buseju. That's actually one of the decks that I played against in the prelim with Buseju and Renin Six. Why not? Seventh place Parrot on Green White Taxes featuring Yurion. Let's talk about this one for a minute. Green White Taxes. Haven't heard about this one in a while. They're playing four Buseju, one Iganjo, and a Lion Sash. I think something that we didn't talk about explicitly when we discussed Buseju in our spoiler eps is the interaction between it and Leonin Arbiter. Oh. So you can blow up their things, and if they don't have the extra mana to pay the, the Arbiter tax, you're just, it's just a removal spell for lands, for other artifacts, enchantments, what have you. That's a great point. I play. I actually played against Yorian Mono White taxes in uh, when I was playing in leagues this weekend, and I was like, "This deck was not as bad as I as I thought it it could have been recently." But uh, Arbiter is definitely a card that you should always keep an eye on because it can break that symmetry really well on effects that let you search. Yeah, and on top of that, this deck is running Thalia, which reduces the cost of Buseju. So in some cases, it's just one mana to blow up a land or a permanent. Also, they had one copy of Ramunap Excavator. So you can just get those lands back after you use them to blow up whatever opponent's permanence you don't care about. Or rather, you do care enough about to destroy. Wow. Punt and Wine even tweeted that they played against this deck in the Swiss and it beat them. So maybe this is just a nice little synergy. It, it almost makes me wonder if this synergy is so powerful that you don't want to play it in a Yarion deck so that you can have a little extra consistency, find those Arbiters, find those Sages more frequently, and make that one of excavator a more reliable engine to just blow stuff up and then play the land for mana perhaps it's important to clarify there that excavator doesn't put the land in your hand you will actually have to then play the busaju as a mana source yeah you still get the other part of it are there any ways for it to bring to to bring busaju back they didn't have run in six and i yeah. i can't think off the top of my head of any other like if popular effects in modern that put a that land that. In a graveyard to the hand all right and finally eighth place marcus mpv on blue white hammer with no new cards. The old version of the White Hammer. Wow. So that was a lot of decks. Modern staple Lavinia. A lot of decks. I mean, we all we did think at the time that Lavinia might turn up eventually, or it seemed like it was a good Oh yeah, card, for sure. So it's just it's a it's definitely a tech piece that has actually been around more than I expected in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of text on that card. Some some high level takeaways. Lots of Buseju, which is I mean, this is the card I think we all expected to be good. And likewise, it just saw a ton of play across top eights in all three tournaments and across a number of different decks, including some decks that we didn't really even expect to see, like Assault Loam. So yes, our sample size is small. It's just one weekend, but it's a mana source with a powerful ability that synergizes with a lot of other powerful cards in the format. I think Passage is probably just here to stay, at least as a one of, if not more in some strategies. No surprises here. Huge weekend for Hammer overall. I think every top eight had multiple copies of Hammer with no apparent consensus on what the best version is. Where we saw a blue-white version, we saw the black and white version, we saw new and old versions playing new cards or no new cards. And it's just like Sigarda's Aid, Colossus Hammer, Cheap Creatures equals get there. I mean, not that means it's exactly the same as it's been for a year, right? And there's no consensus on past like 52 cards 
you you have the core and and exactly what you need there and then sideboard and accessory colors to flavor and taste yeah yeah i i, I think in some cases the accessory colors can help support different metagames or matchups we'll get into more of that later but the fact that we saw a blue white version that didn't run reality chip even i think it just kind of speaks to the power of hammer as a deck the last thing I will point out, none of these top eights had like a new artifact deck emerge. You know, this wasn't like Kaldheim where all of a sudden Valky Cascade decks took over the format. And the only reason I bring that up is to say it's pretty evident that we're seeing an initial impact from this standard set in modern. And I think we would probably even agree that this has been a bigger short term impact than most other recent standard sets. You know what I mean? But not necessarily in a disruptive way, but more of just like, a, hey, humans got some cards and Tex has got some cards, but we're also using those cards in all the familiar faces, except like Grixis Shadow and Murktide didn't seem to adopt anything new, at least not yet. Which is probably the power level we would want from Standard. I think that's kind of usually what we want when, when a set comes out. We don't want Modern to break. We want some new innovation, usually small innovations, and maybe we'll get one deck that's kind of mostly made of new cards, and maybe it'll be one of the decks we're talking about in the second half of this this show. But um, I think I do think that's sort of the level that we want to fly at usually. You know, we want Modern to be mostly our stuff, and then occasionally it gets a little bit better, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm amped for the set. Because I think it's going to do exactly what you all said, which is like some some cool additions that maybe bump up some decks, some percentage points, and perhaps more importantly than even percentage points, it's just people's interest in playing them. And I think that we see a lot of times is that Magic Online especially is kind of an echo chamber. And I don't mean that like in a bad way. I think that we we look at data and then it feeds what happens the next week, which feeds what happens the next week. And then all of a sudden everyone's saying, yeah, Hammer sucks. Or everyone's saying, yeah, Humans is unplayable. And then when people have new tools to play with and experiment with, they're going to go back to those strategies, those decks. They're going to do something like play Heliod Life Gain. They're going to do something like play Five Color Humans. And then people might realize or also just be tempted and encouraged to say, oh, hey, man, that deck did well again. Maybe it's not as bad as it, as it, as it says. And, the, and people who really like humans can say, I have a reason to be encouraged to go back to this well and, uh, and get a drink. And I think that's what makes Magic really fun in a lot of ways is that uh, you feel encouraged to play the decks that you identify with. Like you know, every time you listen to Mishra's Babble, you're going to hear Spider Space talk about taxes because his co-hosts are going to make him say something about how bad it is, right? And it's great for Gabe to be able to say, you know what? I tried some of these new tools and they're awesome. Like it, it might not make my deck like amazing again, but like it made me go back and check it out and test some things out. And and that's what's dope. Absolutely. Right. right. Well, Let's let's plan to move on to the next section where we're going to look at some of the best or most interesting new decks. You know, this is our fun with artifacts episode. Firstly, we believe Heave. We didn't quite realize, I guess, how much artifact stuff there was in this set, but there's a ton, and artifacts are usually powerful. Many decks this week to talk about Neon Dynasty. Stay with us. Stanislav, are you, did I catch you at a bad time? I'm just 
shaving my little beard. <laughs> You're shaving the beard off? It looks so good. Well, you know, I like to line up my neck, my cheeks. Oh, yeah. It looks. Really, I mean, I was going to say it looked better than ever, and I could smell you from here. In a good way or a bad way? Hey, guys, what are you doing in here? You've been in here for 25 minutes. There's only two sinks in this bathroom. Ah. <laughs> All right, I'll be in the living room of, of uh, Dive Down Central. See you later. No, so we, we thought... We would we would surprise <laughs> we thought we would surprise you all by putting putting a live mic in Stan and my shared bathroom in, in the dive down compound and talk about our our shaving experiences with our ongoing sponsor Barrister and Man. We thought we'd we'd put it in between the dive down and the breakdown to just give it the the time it deserved. Yeah, we're still loving our, our sponsorship relationship with Will, uh, citizen of the Dive Down Nation, and his company, Barrister and Man. And I am amped for some of the new products that are coming out that I think are coming on the way. If you want to check these out, you can go over, I believe they are coming out before this episode launches, and they are Passiflora and Paganini's Violin, set for release on Tuesday, the 15th. The day after Valentine's Day, use all of your Valentine's Day money from your grandparents and spend it at Barrister and Man. So, so Passiflora, a passion fruit fougere, which is a fern fragrance. That sounds dope. I love like ferny style of fragrances. I like smelling like the woodsies. And Paganini's violin. This is like the most will thing. Paganini's violin is inspired by a story about famed Italian violin virtuoso Niccolo Paganini. So he didn't I don't he didn't even tell me what it smells like cuz it's going to smell like a famed Italian violin virtuoso. That's all you need. I know exactly what that smells like. I mean, it probably smells dope. But of course, you can use sign up code, not sign up code. You can use coupon code the dive down 2022 at barrister and man m a n n.com. Awesome soaps, awesome fragrances, shaving soaps, uh shaving balms. Thanks for uh, working with us, Will, and thanks for all y'all for checking out Barrister and Man. I move on to the decks. Okay, so we're going to head out of this ad break and go into the dive down. So stay with us. All right, y'all, thanks for bearing with us in our fun adventure with Barrister and Man ad break. But this is Fun with Artifacts Week the first week after a new set comes out is kind of always fascinating and fun. You know, you're refreshing uh, Robert Taylor, aka Fire Shoes, on Twitter. You're refreshing their their Twitter stream to see what new decks people are playing and winning with. And you're you know you're discovering everyone has a new broken deck. You're seeing all these new cards show up in unexpected and expected places. You're burning a lot of wild cards on Magic Arena if you're still playing Historic or uh, Alchemy or something like that, and you're instantly feeling regret. And if you're us, you're playing with some of these new decks to talk about them on the next episode of your hit podcast, The Dive Down. What we quickly noticed, however, is the popularity and apparent boost in power level that artifact-based decks got, and that was happening in every format. And that's not surprising, perhaps, given that Kamigawa Neon Dynasty has a healthy dose of artifacts for us to be playing with. You know, Spike 5 0 to his first league with a deck featuring none other than modern powerhouse Consulate Dreadnought. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw historic vehicles decks popping up, both aggro and controlling. Uh, players like 
Gabe Nassif were doing some kind of like uh, what Grease Fang reanimator style strategies and historic. We saw the triumphant return of Pioneer in Seoul, including friend of the show Dom Harvey taking it to a PTQ. And basically, all of these decks were made possible by cards that we did not talk about at all in our spoiler <laughs> episode. So we're really sorry, everybody. Uh, mech Hanger supremacy, though, apparently. So yeah, I mean, we did we did talk about Mech Hanger. That was cool. So as usual, after a set is out and people are playing it, we decided to take a look at some of these decks, play them ourselves, get a feel for the impact that Kamigawa Neon Dynasty might be having on the formats that we cover and play. You know, is Mech Hanger a more powerful land than Boseju? It's hard to say, but we're definitely going to say yes. So the, fir- <laughs> the first deck I wanted to talk about was Agro Azorius Vehicles in Historic it's one of the first lists that I saw uh, that looked interesting. It required just a mere seven rare wild cards or what? That's like about 75 days of free-to-play grinding. I wasn't really in the mood to fire up Magic Online for whatever reason. So I was like, let's just jump on Magic Arena and try this deck out. It, I saw it from uh, the Twitter handle is uh, Jared Ferris and Fireshoes retweeted it. So you know that's an endorsement. Yeah. If Fireshoes retweets it, you know, he thinks it's cool. And of course, thanks again, Fireshoes, for doing the hard work out there. 10,000 plus Twitter followers. Oh my. Yeah, just a, a staple of the community. An institution. Fireshoes sponsor our podcast. <laughs> so the way this deck is built, it's primarily built around vehicles and creatures that can efficiently crew those vehicles and some cheaty ways to get some high CMC vehicles both onto the battlefield and to get them attacking. So Neon Dynasty brings more of a critical mass of cool vehicles to the format. So we have things like Mobilizer Mech, which is a one in the blue, three, four flying vehicle with crew three. It looks like a sweet Gundam suit. So I guess it's kind of like Voltron where it has like, you know, someone in the head, someone in the arm, someone in the legs. But when it becomes crewed, another target vehicle you control becomes an artifact creature until end of turn. There's also Imperial Recovery Unit, which is two and a white, three, four, crew two, that returns a two mana value or uh, fewer, less, creature or vehicle from your graveyard to your hand when it attacks. There's Surge Hacker Mech, which is a four mana generic, five, five vehicle with Menace and crew four. But when it ETBs, it deals damage equal to twice the number of vehicles you control to target creature or a Planeswalker the opponent controls. And then there's Thundersteel Colossus, which is a 7-mana generic 7-7 with Trample and Haste and a Mirror Crew 2. So, along with these vehicles, there's an important creature we mentioned in the spoiler episodes, which is Hotshot Mechanic. It's a single white mana 2-1 artifact Fox Pilot that crews vehicles as though its power were too greater, meaning out of the box it can crew 4 and you combine this with earlier creatures like Toolcraft Exemplar, Ingenious Smith, powerful vehicles that you've seen probably like Heart of Kirin, Peace Walker Colossus, Sky Sovereign Council Flagship, perhaps most importantly, Parhelion II from War of the Spark. Uh, we have these new options to add to a vehicle-based deck. So Parhelion II, a card that many of these new artifact decks are trying to take advantage of both fair and potentially unfair decks. Although I'm not sure if any of these decks are particularly fair. I'm going to read it. Perhelion 2, six white, white legendary vehicle. It has flying first strike and vigilance. Whenever it attacks, you create 
two 4-4 white angel creature tokens with flying and vigilance that are attacking. It has crew four, and it is a 5-5. So, of course, Parhelion 2 sounds great if you can start attacking in with it, but of course, six white-white is a somewhat prohibitive casting cost, so you might think that it seems a little bit ambitious, but what this deck features is one more new tool that we didn't mention in our spoiler episodes, and that is Anchor to Reality, uh, my favorite Eminem song. Two blue-blue sorcery as an additional cost to cast this spell, sacrifice an artifact or creature. I believe that's an Eldritch Evolution effect, right, Dave? Oh my god, I'm dying right now. Eldritch Jane, Evolution effect? You know, it's not. We talked about this last night. It's Tinker. Tinker, one of the most... I don't know what that spell is. ...broken cards ever ever printed. I've never cast Tinker in my life. Well, you missed out on the <laughs> on a good era of magic then. Uh, it's, it was in between Ice Age and when you restarted in cons, and so you kind of missed out on that. A, yeah, yeah. A, a mere 19 years gap. This so, is a fixed tinker. 16, yeah, 19 yeah. years. Yeah. So what you do is you search your library for an equipment or vehicle card, put that card onto the battlefield, then shuffle. If it has mana value less than the, the sacrifice permanence mana value, scry two. You are never scrying two at this card. If you ever scry two at this card, you did it wrong, I think. Oh, I did it wrong. Yes. So this lets you tinker up a high CMC option like Parhelion or Thundercles Colossus to take over a mid or a late game with their relatively low crew requirements. Or you can grab a tech piece like Sky Sovereign or Surge Hacker Mech if you need to interact with the opponent's board. I can't believe that this lets you sacrifice a creature. Yeah, too. that's what's cool. That's the weirdest part. It's creature or artifact. For sure. Yeah. Um, and so what this deck is looking to do is cast these efficient creatures that can crew four, like Hotshot Mechanic, or crew three pretty easily because Toolcraft Exemplar triggers to three at the beginning of your combat and you have a window to crew your vehicles then. And then start attacking it. And then you can kind of double up on your crewing with the effect from Mobilizer Mac, or you pay the activated ability on Peacewalker Colossus, which is one in the white, make another target vehicle an artifact creature for the turn. Or, of course, pay three mana and tap Mech Hanger to do the same thing. Uh, best land in the set. So how's that sound to you all? Kind of, you know, is that, is that intriguing? Is it kind of ambitious? So how's it sound? There's realizing that you can sacrifice a creature to anchor a reality makes me a little more interested in this deck than I was before, since you can pretty easily get rid of something like an ingenious Smith. that's not doing anything anymore to move on. If you wanted to, um, that's pretty cool. I mean, it does feel like the type of deck that probably has a tough time early in the game. And then, especially if you don't get your combo going, I don't know if there's enough gas, but, um, I like that there's sure. additional redundant ways to make your big vehicles go without pilots with yeah, Peacewalker I mean, Colossus. Have, have you been the type of person who's just like, man, I really wish I could play all these vehicles? Here's what I would say. I don't. <laughs> I have not been that type of person, but I do think that Kaladesh, with the exception of uh, Smuggler's Copter, uh, not not just Smuggler's Copter, but with a few exceptions, they didn't really have vehicles as a theme uh, in a way that you could play like a vehicles deck very well. Now there's Mardu, Mardu vehicles. That was a big deck in standard, but you know, it just didn't feel like they were really based on really cool vehicles for some reason. And so I think in that sense, it felt like a design space that maybe nothing had coalesce around in a little while. I will tell so you I what, see that. what feels cooler than like piloting a big boat with like filigree type stuff is a sick mech suit, I have to admit. 
Mm-hmm. Stan, have you ever been a vehicles guy? Sort of. Cool. <laughs> so let me tell you a little bit, Stan. You ready to talk about this deck? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm actually hoping you can sell me on it because it looks very fragile. Yeah, um, I'm not going to be able to sell you on it. But okay. I'm going to sell okay. you. No I'm way. Sell Shane you. played a deck he hated for Sleep no, Believe I, 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 I can't I believe it. I didn't hate it. I think there's something here. I don't think it's this exactly, but I think there's something here. So let's get into what that is. So, I mean, this deck sounds cool, but like, here's the real issue it is Historic is, is busted. Like, Historic is extremely powerful, and there's really powerful stuff happening. And you don't really get a lot of free wins. And this is getting to what you said, Dave. Like, you don't slowly develop a board and swing in with some vehicles and, like, win in Historic with the rest of the stuff that's going on. And so the primary issue with this deck, like many decks I play, and it makes me just think I don't know what I'm doing, is that your creatures have to exist on the battlefield to, to crew vehicles. And otherwise, you have, like, these empty husks of metal. Your, your mech suit is just sitting there waiting for the pilots to show up, and they're just not doing anything. And so that's kind of the, the first issue, is that there's not a lot of creatures... Some of the creatures you need to develop to be able to crew things, like uh, Ingenious Smith is a 1-1 until you start casting artifacts after they hit the battlefield. And so that takes a turn or two for them to even to get to enough power to crew things by, them, by their lonesome. And another issue is that blocking with this deck is just a real pain because... Toolcraft Exemplar goes to three power on your turn at the beginning of your combat and not your opponent's. So you're not even able to use it to crew your own vehicles on the defensive end of things. And then, like I said before, Ingenious Smith is tutoring stuff, but to get it to three power to start crewing stuff takes a few turns. And so what I think is important is, or potentially important, depending on the matchup, if you're playing this in best of three, is that you have to start thinking about how to reserve your creatures for turns where they, when they come down, they're going to have summoning sickness, but they can crew vehicles still that are already on the battlefield and start attacking in with them. But the problem with that, of course, is that you're not doing anything to prevent your opponent from executing their game plan. You're just playing empty hunks of metal. And so this deck essentially has almost no interaction. Uh, it struggles on the defensive end of things, like I mentioned. And so what you're really relying on doing with this deck as it's built is that I'm going to overpower my opponent by enabling some vehicular madness. But that just takes a lot of time to set up, especially in Historic. And so like you know, if you're trying to get some chip damage in early by playing your creatures out, they're at risk to all the interaction out there. Saving them for the late game just lets your opponent set up and start running you over, put the game out of reach. Like something like Life Gain, for instance, just laughs at this deck. And and, and anything with like removal on the clock also makes this deck not seem super powerful. Because even if you do stick a creature and start attacking with a vehicle, those vehicles can die to removal too. They are artifact creatures. So Sure, they might be out of burn range, but they're not out of fatal push range or anything like that. What did you think was the most busted thing this deck could do? Like, is there a specific position you were trying to line up while you were playing it? I mean, the the thing that I think the thing that people really want to be doing is the Parhelion two game, which is I'm going to cast Anchor to Reality. I'm going to get a Parhelion on the board, and then I'll be able to pretty I'll be able to crew it. With crew four, which is still kind of ambitious because that's that requires either uh, the hotshot mechanic or a couple other creatures to be at four power combined, 
or that you can crew something or use your mech hanger at that point because you probably have enough mana and maybe have a mech hanger to get at least one attack in with Barhelion, right? And a 5-5 flying with first strike and vigilance and stuff like that is pretty good. And then you generate two 4-4 four, four white angel tokens that are also attacking with vigilance. So And they're permanent. They don't yes, go they, away yeah, at the end they, of turn or something They don't weird. get exiled or anything like that. Like it sounds like it potentially could, right? So that's the thing is like, I want to cheat Parhelion. You could potentially cheat something like Thundersteel Colossus just for the trample and haste and low crew cost at uh, seven, seven. So that's pretty cool too. So the problem is just it takes a lot of time and you have to have things line up really well. So it's sort of like this ambitious aggro deck or well, not quite aggro deck. It's like just an ambitious go over the top deck, but the go over the top is still just attacking with creatures that need to live. Right. Which is not stupendous. But I, I think what's cool about this deck is that I think there's a core here. I think there's some cool options. And a strategy like this has legs. Like, I think that maybe you could just run three colors. You could run something like Grease Fang. You could maybe run something like Dapala, right? Mm-hmm. The, you, could, you could go into a, a Jeskai type color mix. You could go into an Esper type color mix uh, with the right co- amount of creatures, the right vehicles, probably some planeswalkers. Like I just, I think that there'd be no reason that I might not want to run like a Karn the Great Creator in the stack. You know what I mean? For both crewing your uh, Heart of Kirins or tutoring up a, a cool piece from the sideboard. Do you think it needs to be a vehicle deck or can it be to your Karn point, some type of artifact synergy that uses maybe for instance like the grease fang perhelion combo as one of the one of the strong things you can do while also maybe supporting an other artifact strategy that does non-vehicle things yeah i think that's kind of what game nasif's list is looking like it's sort of like more combo oriented where it's trying to get perhelion to and other targets into the graveyard like it's doing like thirst for knowledge things, chart a course things, and then Grease Fang Okiba Boss can reanimate them. But at the same time, it has like Tezzeret and an- enough creatures, I think, to to really be doing something other other than just say I have like literally five vehicles on the board and I hope to sort of use different abilities and maybe mech hanger to get them activated. But I think that that kind of deck is really attractive to a certain type of player. Like it's almost like a reanimator deck, right? Where it's like, I'm going to do some stuff. I'm going to reanimate Parhelion and, and cheese you out in that fashion, rather than just rely on anchor to reality to, to tinker that up. And so I think that largely there is a core here. I think that maybe this first version was like, what are the cool vehicles? that I can put in there. Like, do I need Imperial Recovery Unit? Do I need Surge Hacker Mech? Do I need Thundersteel Colossus? Uh, but I think Mobilizer Mech is super cool. Like, that's really efficient. And, like, crewing, effectively crewing another vehicle uh, is is really good for the rate that you're getting for, like, a 3-4 flyer, crew 3 for one in the blue, and then making another vehicle into a creature is, like, very efficient for what it's doing. And I think that there's some cool options in this overall kit of parts. I just think that this is sort of like, this is like a week one deck, which is like, what's the most ambitious I can be to, to prove my point and like test things out. And then we're going to iterate on that. 
So I mean, I'm not I'm I'm, I'm not going to give it a sleeve. I'm, I will give this particular version like a heave, but the core here and the idea here. I think is, is, is very cool. And I think that I'm into the idea and I think that we will see an eventual sleeve in a deck like this. I don't know if it will be combo. I don't know if it'll be sort of mid range aggro. It'll be something. I have one last question about the deck and about the card mobilizer mech in particular. How good was it? How good was mobilizer? Mobilizer is sick. I mean, like I said, it's just like, it's so efficient what it's doing. And then like you can just piece together some really cool little little combos. Like the problem is, is it does not crew another vehicle, so you can't like do like cool chains, right? Like you can't be like mobilizer mech into mobilizer mech into surge hacker mech or something like that. You can just be like mobilizer mech into thunder seal colossus, which is still saying something, right? But uh, it's just a little, it's just a little two for one type deal. What it's not like I can you can't piece together like a. a a wild combo strategy, but with something like as simple as uh, Peace Walker Colossus, that's pretty efficient. One in a white to make a, v- a vehicle into an artifact creature. Uh, Mech Hanger is pretty efficient at what it's doing, and it does allow sort of the long game to work, where it's like I'm going to pump some mana into something when I no longer have stuff that's worth casting. So I think there's, there, there, like I said, I think there's some cool stuff here. It's just a matter of how do you piece it together. All right. Well, Shane, thanks for taking us through a little bit of historic and fighting the good fight on Arena. I am going to talk this week a little bit about modern, because as I'm sure everyone can imagine, every time there's a new artifact deck or artifact set in modern, everybody goes, can we bring affinity back? Can we make affinity a thing again? And as uh, Stan mentioned, there was even an affinity list in the... um, breakdown of one of the tournaments that we looked at today. So there were two lists that popped up on Twitter this week that I think were both really got a lot of notice. One was from uh, friend of the show, Aspiring Spike, and the other one was from friend of the show, Spider Space. And they're kind of both at different ends of the scale. You know, one was a bit more aggro, one was a bit more mid-range. So I tried them both out in different capacities. But in case you're not too familiar with Affinity, you know, used to be a modern powerhouse, perennial contender, was hurt by a lot of bannings over the years, and the final nail in that coffin was probably Mox Opal being banned, although the metagame had started to shift away from Affinity a little bit and make it a little bit harder to play in general. But, um, you know, the interesting thing about back then was that it just played really efficient cards. It played a little bit like Hardened Scales does in some ways. And the Affinity decks of today actually play cards that have the affinity mechanic on them, which they didn't really used to back in that kind of uh, late teens version of, of modern. Frogmite supremacy. Yes, and that's where we are right now. So bolstered by a couple of additions from Modern Horizons 2, depending on the flavor of the deck that you're looking at, Thought Monitor and Sojourner's Companion in particular, you know, there's a couple of different cards that were added from Neon Dynasty that kind of make sense here. One is that that appeared in these decks and a lot of artifact decks in Modern over the weekend. The first one that we did not talk about a couple of weeks ago is Moonsnare Prototype. Moonsnare Prototype is a single blue to cast. It's an artifact. You tap it, and you tap an untapped artifact or creature you control to add a colorless mana, and it has channel for generic blue discard Moonsnare Prototype. The owner of target non-land permanent puts it on the top or bottom of their library. What do you think of this card? Have you seen this card? Dan, did you see this card? I've seen this card, and I can't decide how I'm supposed to play it. This is one of those cards that is is cheap, so it needs to do something. And it has like two modes of text, right? It's got 
the tap and the channel ability. Is is this card not in Spike Stream Decker because it doesn't exist yet on Stream Decker? This card is not in Spike's deck. This is in Gabe's deck. Got it. So okay. This is the this is the card that actually saw a lot more play than than kind of the Spike angle on it. So I might I might talk about this this deck first. But what this card is this card is Springleaf Drum. Yeah, it's just it's just another yes. Springleaf Drum, and that's that's the real point. And it, the thing that's nice about it is one of the biggest bombers about having playing a deck with Springleaf Drum in it is, of course, when you draw a Springleaf Drum late in the game, and you're like, I do not need this card at all. And what you get from Moonsnare Prototype is a, an expensive channel ability, but that does something pretty significant where you can put stuff on top of someone's. You know, they get to choose if it's top or bottom of their library, so it sort of comes attached to an Aether Gust. In, in some sorts of way. And that that's handy and makes it a little bit more interactive. But I think the really big thing that this does for decks like Spider Spaces decks, since I, I think I'm going to switch and talk about that one first, is it allows you to play eight spring, spring leaf drums. So you have so many more turns, turn ones where you have a zero casting cost artifact, a spring leaf drum, and a land, so that you can ramp into much more powerful plays on turn two and on basically. And in fact, you know, one thing that you that I saw a lot with this deck was I would often play a Springleaf Drum and then play a Moonsnare prototype off of Springleaf Drum so that the next turn I would have like four mana, depending on how many zeros I had, or just be ready to to have an additional additional thing once I got to drop some other artifacts, basically. So it really makes the ramp of these kind of decks a lot more consistent. So there's a couple important differences between this this and drum that I want to dissect. Yeah. A, it costs blue mana. Springleaf drum costs a single gem. Yeah, mana. rough. Correct. So it's pushing you more into blue. Okay. Yeah. This lets you tap untapped artifacts or creatures, which is cool, right? Like a springleaf drum without an ornithopter or whatever isn't really doing anything. However, this only taps for colorless mana. Right. Did you find in, in, in the decks that you played that either having the blue required more blue pips of, among your mana base, or rather the fact that this never tapped for a color and Springleaf Drum does, was at odds with, or, or put you in positions that were like disadvantaged. Yeah, because like you know for this, for like a, a one a one drop, you want like what, 14 sources of a color to hit it like 90% of the time or something like that? Is that the is that your math, Doctor Carson? Yeah, I think that's yeah. Doctor Carson's webpage I've looked at once or twice. I think it's about fourteen. Yeah, and that's exactly how many untapped blue sources Gabe has in his Someone list. Someone may 14. have looked at Frank's webpage just now, and and I think it yes, exactly. And so he has he has fourteen ways to get uh, blue mana on turn one. The deck that that Gabe played with, I think, is super interesting if you take a look at it because it it's made up of like five things. <laughs> This deck is zero casting cost creatures. There's eight. There's four Memnites, four Ornithopters, eight Springleaf drums. So it's four Moonspray prototypes, four Springleaf drums, eight Thought casts. It's Thought cast and Thought monitor, and then you basically have Urza Saga and the Saga package, all the Saga targets, and then you have some gravy cards on top of that, which include Urza, Esper Sentinel, and Nettlesist, and that's it. That's the deck. And yeah. so what you're trying to do here is ramp, get as many artifacts out as you can. In some ways, Urza and Nettlesist are the, your threat payoffs here because, you know, Urza makes a Karnstruct. 
and Nettlesyst counts all the artifacts that you have in play. So you're just playing a ton of artifacts as fast as you can and trying to get some big threats out. And then occasionally, you know, you have to draw more cards. And so when you're drawing, you, you get a little bit more gas from Thoughtcast and Thought Monitor. And um, then you get your selection with Urza Saga and all that kind of stuff going on. Or you just make a bunch of uh, constructs and kind of go to town from there. I do think that this deck is interesting and uh especially when you compare it to it seems like a lot of people are kind of iterating in this space when you see lists that were popping up over the weekend having access to blue and white gives you a chance to play things like portable hole metallic rebuke and even teferi time raveler if you need to out of the sideboard that lets you have a little bit more of a long game than some of the other decks that people were looking at with affinity uh notably spike stack that we'll talk about in a couple minutes again i played against this version or a version of this deck in a league where it looked like exactly what you played, but they also had at least one copy of, of upheaval. And one of their win conditions was using Urza and all of their artifacts to just make a billion blue mana upheaval to just like blow up my board essentially. Oh, wow. And then they essentially get to recast everything, make more constructs, play all their zeros and kind of take over the game from there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty interesting to to try that. I, there is, you're right that there. I a couple of times when I had Urza out, I didn't feel like I had much to do with all the mana that that Urza was generating, other than cast more thought casts or cast more thought monitors, which is fine sometimes to be able to just kind of chain those together multiple times because they get extremely cheap as you get deeper into the deck. Well, but, well um, can't you also just use Urza's ability? Yes, you can. Although it's kind of interesting that you're kind of, it, I never really had a chance to in a lot of the games that I played where, because I was playing out, you know, they weren't going, the games weren't going quite that long, but definitely that's another card advantage engine that's in, in the deck if you, if you need it. So I thought this deck was cool. I thought to me, it really demonstrated the power of, of Moonsnare prototype in the sense that it's good. It's going to be good sometimes in these decks that really want to ramp early with artifacts to have access to extra spring, spring leaf drums, basically, which I thought was awesome. And I've seen a bunch of people building things around this. You know, I've seen ones trying to be a little more aggro where they have some of the affinity four fours that like mirror enforcer, so uh, sojourner's companion with no Urza, but still they have thought cast and they might have eight thought cast. So there's kind of like this slightly aggro, but we draw cards version of the deck. I saw another list posted by some uh, at Alp, Alp and Co. MTG was more of a mono blue take on eight cast with a staff of the water deep Moonstair prototype and Emery. So Emery is doing stuff to bring back, uh, bring back cards that you lose out of the graveyard. Um, and then finally the last list was shared by, um, yoked from our discord who i'm not sure what their real name is um and it included a card that they're really high on that i think we might have missed in our spoiler and that card is patchwork automaton for a more again a more aggro take on these kind of blue blue lists this this, this card is this card's super good so this card was a two colorless for a one one artifact creature yeah, construct Right? It says, whenever you cast an artifact spell, put a plus one, plus one counter on Patchwork oh, Automaton. Okay. And, and it has Ward 2. Yeah, which basically what? You, you can't target it unless you pay two. The, the opposing player pays two. Is this the first modern playable Ward card that we've seen? I kind of feel like it, it actually is, is, right? Yeah, it's pretty darn good. 
Like it's it's it grows so quickly. And the ward helps protect it in like a legitimate way because if the opponent wants to take care of it, they're gonna effectively trade down on mana because they can if they even have like a fatal push or a lightning bolt, they're gonna pay three for something you paid two for and not do anything else that turn. And then if you untap with this, in many decks that play a card like this, you're going to spam some zero-cost artifacts, you're going to spam some stuff with affinity for artifacts, and this thing grows fast. And then you're swinging in with something that's like a 4-4 or a 5-5 extremely quickly. Yeah. It's, it, the thing that's cool about this card, too, especially in Modern, is that you can pair it with Memnites and Ornithopters, in addition to Springleaf Drums and Moon Snare prototypes, right? So, like, you hold all your zero drops until turn two, play this on two, play your zeros, make it, like, a 4-4, four, four, yeah, maybe. Boop, 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 boop. Yeah. yeah, and then, and then maybe That's even, the like, makes. continue just going off with your Springleaf Drum effects, too. And in some cases, I think taking over the board right away and then just saying, like... <laughs> Do you have a Wrath or some other way to kill this? And if not, that's just going to beat you down in two turns. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's not a card that I got to play with, but definitely you can see a lot of people sort of brewing in this space. And I think that's that's really cool. There's, I think there's a lot of options here for these kind of mostly blue-based affinity decks right now. So, you know, I played this in uh, tournament practice instead of a league. I, you know, I had some fun playing around with with Gabe's list. I didn't do as well with it as I as I did with uh, Everett's list, but we can talk about that in a moment. But I think that there's something here, and I feel like there's a lot more kind of dialing in that's going to go on here than with a list like what whatever was playing earlier in the weekend. When you were in a position to cast Metallic Rebuke, did you ever feel like you could have maybe cast that? Just like OG Counterspell or that new Affinity Counterspell instead? Definitely. In fact, I, I didn't quite get into a lot of positions where Metallic Rebuke was even great, as yeah. it turned out. So I um I I was playing around a lot of times with pulling the, the Counterspells out of this deck and trying to do other stuff with it. But um I, I think there were moments where it felt like I could have just cast Counterspell, too, for sure. But, you know, Metallic Rebuke is, is really cool, too. Sure, when it costs one. And does yep. the thing. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about the other deck that I played. And that was based off of Mech Hanger, which is a card that Shane talked about a little bit. I just want to remind people what it does. Mech Hanger Best is a land. Taps for a colorless. Uh, you may add one mana of any... You, another tap ability has you may add one mana of any color. Spend this mana only to cast a pilot or a vehicle spell. And then it has three generic tap. Target vehicle becomes an artifact creature until the end of turn so we talked about this in combination with one card in the spoiler episode and spike kind of went directly for it in the first trophy that he got of the season by having consulate dreadnought in an affinity based a colorless based affinity list basically if you don't remember what consulate dreadnought does it's a one mana value artifact vehicle it has crew six and it is a seven eleven, and that is all it is. I can't. When I saw that it was one mana value, I was like, "Man, that is bonkers!" I forgot that it was so cheap to put on the board. Yeah, yeah. What a hilarious card! It, I mean, it was a really funny card in um, in limited in that format too. That you know wasn't good, but so this deck is much more about being aggro, right, and trying to go as fast as you can to get giant threats out, uh, and so. This take on it is 
you know, your zero casting cost creatures, you got your four Memnites, your four Ornithopters. Then you have a bunch of other affinity creatures. You have four Frogmites, three Mirror Enforcer, and four Sojourner's Companion. And in case you don't remember, Frogmite is a four mana 2-2 two, two with affinity for artifacts. You're definitely trying to play that for free. Mm-hmm. And then Mirror Enforcer and Sojourner's Companion are both seven mana 4-4s four that have affinity for artifacts. Sojourner's Companion has the additional upside of having artifact land cycling, where if you pay two colorless, you can discard it to go into your library and get an artifact land. So what artifact lands do you have in this deck? Well, you have four Darksteel Citadel and four Treasure Vault to go along with three Mishra's Factory, a Mountain, and four Urza's Saga. So what you're really trying to do with this deck is use your lands as much as you can to get you into having those affinity cards be as cheap as possible. And then the rest of the deck is... Four Mishra's Bauble, four Consulate Dreadnought, four Springleaf Drum, four Nettle Cyst, two Cranial Plating, one Welding Jar, and one Shadow Spear. This deck is fast, okay? Like, I posted some screenshots to you all that I was like, yeah, oh my bonkers. gosh, I have, you know, I have, uh, you know, eight game objects on the board in game two, in turn two, and I'm going to be able to, and then turn three, I'm attacking with a Consulate Dreadnought, two mirror enforcers and da 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 like it it got fast really really puts a lot of pressure on really really fast it got fast really really quickly yes it did sure things got really fast really quickly i think that there's some interesting things here though to talk about with consulate dreadnought that kind of make me wonder like how was this good enough to play even before mech hanger because mech hanger is the only new card in this in this build and it, I used it a couple of times to make Consulate Dreadnought into a creature when I had a lot of extra lands, but really that's sort of what you want to do if you missed with your early turns. Because the ideal thing that really happens with this is that Consulate Dreadnought is searchable with Saga, which is gigantic, because if you don't get your oh threat early gosh, or you just want to get a second one after they kill it, you just search it up with Saga. And it can be dropped on turn one with a Springleaf Drum to get an extra play in and set you up for better affinity, you know, turns a turn later. So you can use that to get your Frogmite out. You can use that to get your, your you know, if you go Darksteel Citadel, Ornithopter, Springleaf Drum, Consulate Dreadnought, yeah. you're playing your Frogmite for zero on turn one, which definitely is not that weird of a uh, weird of a draw because you have eight artifact lands. So it's not that hard to lead out on artifact land with this deck. The last thing that it really does that I think is huge for making this deck fast is your ideal sequence with this deck, in my mind, from playing around with it a little bit, was um, you want to get to Urza's Saga. You know, you want to play a land, do, do your stuff, like vomit out your hand, and then play Urza's Saga on turn two, so that on turn three, you're activating Urza's Saga to make it a big enough construct to crew your Consulate Dreadnought. And so what you're really doing is giving your Urza's Saga tokens haste in mm-hmm. some ways by playing Consulate Dreadnought because it's there as a way to use ones that have summoning sickness. So what would happen a lot is you hit him with the Consulate Dreadnought on turn three, then the next turn you're hitting with an Urza's Saga token and a Consulate Dreadnought that you've crewed with your second Saga token, and you just searched up another Consulate Dreadnought. So you can go totally wild with stuff like that in this deck. And, you know, like most 
decks in this vein, it certainly is soft to creature removal, but sometimes you're just too fast and you put too many threats out and it's really hard for people to keep up. And not that many people are playing sweepers these days. There's not a lot of Wrath the God of, of any stripe, you know, um, Supreme Verdict or anything like that. There's no like mass artifact killing. I mean, I, who knows? We might start to see something like Stony Silence appear if artifact decks get really popular, but I, I don't think it's going to happen. You know, I think that that was what was really fun about this deck was just, you know, I started out with like a hot 3-0 in the league that I was playing and then ended up 3-2. I think that I beat, so I, I definitely beat Taxes, that white Taxes deck that we talked about, and Grix's Shadow. I don't remember the third deck that I beat. And then I lost to Red White Crack the Earth and Blue White Control on the other side. And we could talk about Crack the Earth some other time. It's a deck that I wish we had time to talk about today. It was almost the topic of today's episode, but then there was enough artifact decks that we decided that we should do a more timely episode. Yeah, but I, you know, I like to play aggro decks. I enjoyed playing this deck. I thought it was fun. It's it's not resilient, you know. It definitely makes me wonder a little bit if we should try to. This deck should be sculpted a little bit to have your thought cast or thought monitor in it instead of mirror enforcer or something like that. But I guess if you're just trying to be aggressive and put giant threats on the board, you know why? Yeah, because diverge from plan A. Urza Saga. It doesn't really have any card advantage sources, right? Like. You can't really get through your deck particularly faster. No, no. And you're, you know, you might look for Ginger Brute to do some stuff to put a cranial plating on or a nettle cyst. I guess I, one thing I should say that I didn't bring up is this deck runs four nettle cyst and two cranial plating. They do a, a, a really good impression of saga tokens as well to be able to make your ornithopters or something giant to crew your consulate dreadnought as well you know what i mean so you can do you can do these sequences like that with a creature that has summoning sickness you drop the the nettle cyst on it and then boom you have consulate dreadnought how that can attack too mutra's factory uh unimportant okay I, I barely ever activated it i think maybe in one game i turned it on to get an extra two in but it's also there's not really any downside to playing it i don't think for sure that, that's just like a, a card i've always been curious about since it was printed in mh2 and never really found a home yeah, I, I mean, I think it could live here if this was a real deck, but I definitely think that this deck is more of a believe than a sleeve. I think it's really fun, but I don't know if it has like what it takes to really go, go, go. I think I kind of feel the same way about the work that's been done on the deck that uh, Spider Space was playing. You know, Spider Space had tweeted out that he went five and two in the challenge and then had two back to back four ones or something with uh, the Urza's version of the deck. You know, that sounds like a belief plus to me, basically. But that whole core of cards, similar to what Shane said, I feel like there is some kind of deck that's going to coalesce out of this core of blue affinity style cards at this point. I think there's enough critical mass there to make it happen. Nice. Well, I'm happy for you. I'm happy for your three, too. You got your you got your peepees back. Hey, it was good. I did. <sighs> wow. And I opened a chest and it was terrible. Okay. C- can I... Can I talk about a another artifact deck in modern that people might be pretty familiar with and may even be looking forward to hearing about? Please. I, I played Hammer Time, guys. Let's do it. Yeah. It's oh, no, not bad. Not again. Is that good? I played Blue White Hammer because I wanted to see what Reality Chip was all about. And then it also helped that this deck was running Lion Sash and Iganjo as well. So uh, let's talk about Reality Chip first because I think that's kind of the main reason you're going into blue. There's other blue tools, of course, Bell Pierce and Lavinia, but Reality Chip is, I think, kind of the new tech that pulls you into blue, right? And I actually think that this card I found makes an already hard deck even harder to play. And maybe in a good oh, way. Oh boy. Right? It's just like complex because you just have countless decision trees, and this 
card opens up even more. For those of you who don't remember, Reality Chip is one in a blue for a 0-4 legendary equipment jellyfish. Um, and it has a static ability that you may look at the top card of your library, but it also has reconfigure two in a blue. And as long as the reality chip is attached to a creature, you may play lands and cast spells from the top of your library. So it's future sight. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And, and this is the deck that we thought could potentially make it efficient enough that it's going to do something, right? Because you get to avoid the equip cost, hopefully, which makes it yeah. do something more, more fast than like turn three. I gotta say, I think I'm pretty sure when we were talking about this in spoilers, though, we were kind of like, maybe that would be something, but we didn't think it was good enough. It's fascinating to me to see that happen. Yeah, yeah, it happened a lot over the weekend, and I just grabbed the Happy Sandwich deck from Saturday. And here, here's how I felt about Reality Chef. I liked it most, and, and this is probably not surprising at all, but I liked it most in long games, specifically where I did not have a Sigardazade and had to rely on Pure Steel Paladin for my equipment cheating thing. Okay, because you know, without Sakarta said, you can't just surprise your opponent with a with a hammer. You kind of have to position yourself and try to wiggle out of the situation and either swing at your opponent though they see it coming when they don't have any way to protect themselves, or move things around so that you're swinging to remove creatures in combat, and then putting a hammer on another creature that's still on tap so that you have a big powerful blocker left onward and upward. In one particular game, the one I actually played against Urza Affinity, they were able to just keep making constructs that would just routinely chump block whatever I was attacking with. And I did not have a Sigardazade. I was just counting on um, my Pure Steel Paladin. And in this particular case, it made all of my extra copies of Stoneforge Mystic A, a little harder because it's like, do I grab another hammer to make my creature even bigger? Or am I grabbing, in this case, the reality chip so that I can try to find more cars and play more cars to actually get out of this tight spot where I have a really clogged up board state. Yeah, that seems like a really tough decision to make, right? Where it's like, do I get the card that my deck is named after and try to put some immediate pressure down with it? Or do am I going to get more value through the like iterative value of reality chip? Or like it might take a little bit more time, but potentially I can get a lot out of it. And that's probably, I mean, it seems like a, a tough sort of thought process to really go through. Yeah, I mean, I think the conclusion I came to was that reality ship was really nice when the additional hammer wasn't the thing that was going to win me the game, but rather bearing my opponent in card advantage and being able to apply pressure from a bunch of different angles was the thing that I needed to get out of a tight spot. Because listen, hammer, great deck, but it's a super known entity at this point. People know how vulnerable it is to things like fury and just point removal and being able to just shut off it completely sometimes was something that I had to fight up against, especially because I'm not particularly fluent in this deck. So reality chip was kind of just like learning how to play a new card in an already complicated deck that I didn't know particularly well to begin with. One thing that I think I maybe underestimate a little bit is the fact that even if you don't have a way to cheat on the equipment cost of the reality chip, being able to see the top of your library has value as well, especially if you have extra fetch lands. And it's just like this really simple, you know, dare I say level one play. But like sometimes I was in this position where I could just hold up an extra fetch land and then decide whether or not I wanted to crack it ASAP to get, you know, a another dead card or a, an extra land off the top of my library or 
roll the dice and see if I can draw something else that was good. And I think this deck actually plays a few more fetch lands than I thought it would too. I'm looking at the list right now. It has six. I, I think part of it is because it makes reality chip on its own a little better, but also because, you know, if you're going to play Lavinia or maybe a meddling major, a spell pierce out of the sideboard, it's really important that you're able to find blue early because otherwise you're just going to be playing like a white source and Urza Saga, and then you're going to have dead blue cards in your hand. I will also add one other reason I was impressed with Chip is I think it had subtle modes that you might not necessarily observe the first time you're looking at it. For instance, an O4 body is actually pretty effective right now in Modern. Doesn't die to Bolt. Opponent has to do some work to turn on Unholy Heat. If they're using an entire Fury on your one card, that's a good exchange for you because so frequently Fury is just going to wipe your board otherwise. And this is also a body that it's tough to kill that you can fetch for, right? So even though early, if you're playing like a turn two Stoneforge Mystic, I think you're probably still in most cases better off getting a hammer, especially if you have a way to cheat on the hammer equip cost so that you can try to blow out your opponent as quickly as possible since the long games don't typically favor the hammer player in my opinion. But this was a this is a card that I think allowed you to grind without having to maybe take a turn off to fetch Luris. And Luris grindy as it may be, is also pretty slow too. Like, Luris is just letting you cast one extra card every turn. With the reality chip, you can get three or more if you're not, you know, running into back-to-back lands. And again, the fetch lands will help you clear out back-to-back lands sometimes so that you can just keep casting spells off the top of your library. Likewise, even though it's an 4 it does not have Defender. So this is just one more body that you can swing with, and it being zero power, opponents may be a little bit less likely to block it and if you do happen to have a cigar to Zane on the board, this is a great, another great source to just throw a hammer onto and then surprise your opponent that way. Yep. Yeah. Sometimes you just need extra bodies so that they're, you know, you have more attackers than they have blockers. That's just math. All right. So overall, I'm not sure that this is the one thing that makes the blue version like the new de facto modern deck or the new de facto hammer deck to play in modern. But I think it gives the deck a very unique access that might improve hammer in certain metagames in particular metagames where you're playing against a bunch of other creature decks where you may be not evasive enough or controlling enough to be able to like swing in for lethal out of nowhere cool all right i also played with lion sash that's one in a white for one one artifact equipment cat it's basically scoos that you can fetch right but unlike Scoos, if you equip it to a creature, the other creature gets all the plus one, plus one counters. And then if that creature dies, then your lion Scoos lives on. I think this is just going to be a new staple in every version of Hammer. We saw it appear in the black-white versions as well as the blue-white versions. And in fact, this card pretty much single-handedly won me a game against Living End, or a match against Living End, because I was able to pull it game one. Right, Just having one of in your deck doesn't come at a huge cost. The cards that were frequently coming out of Hammer to make room for some of these new pieces were uh, Memnites. I still had Ornithopters, but be that as it may, Lion Sash, I mean, it's just like main deck graveyard hate. It's also something that you can fetch with your Stoneforge Mystic when that's relevant. If you have extra Stoneforge Mystics, it's a nice way to maybe just like deal with Luris decks. It doesn't even have to be a dedicated graveyard deck. Like it could be Merktide and you slow them down and keep Unholy Heats and, and Dragon Rage Channelers small 
I think it's a really a fair value tool and one of is easy enough to play that it's probably just going to be like a really good tool to have in your hammer lunchbox moving forward, whichever version of hammer you choose to play. I love my hammer lunchbox. Probably any Stoneforge Mystic deck, right? I mean, you feel like it could pop up in any deck where that package is around, or what do you think? It's really important in Hammer to use Sigardazade or Pure Steel Paladin to equip things for free. And I think that's super important for Lion, Sla- Lion Slash as well, because it makes Lion Slash harder to kill. And if you are fetching it with your Stoneforge Mystic over something like Shadow Spear, you know, which is another like really good equipment that it's going to just close out games outright. I think you it's important enough that you don't want it to die. And then you are also potentially taking off an entire turn if you're equipping it to something to make it more resilient. So while maybe the upside is yeah. high enough that any Stoneforge Mystic deck can and will and should play it, I think it's going to be especially powerful in Hammer decks moving forward because of that free equip cost actually just makes it a stronger card and a more resilient one in the face of all the removal that Hammer is pretty vulnerable to, to begin with. A a little bit of an awkward tension between this and Lurus, only in that it's not good if your opponent is playing a ton of removal against you because you don't necessarily want to be like eating all of the creatures in your graveyard. You know what I mean? Because ideally you'd like to buy those back with Lurus at some point, but maybe that's something that you just navigate on a game-to-game basis where perhaps the biggest line sash is better than you know, an extra Ornithopter Esper Sentinel that you got back out of the graveyard on turn four or later. All right, very curious about the next card. How about Igonjo? Yeah, so Igonjo is not an artifact, as it turns out. It's just the land. But because I played it, I'm going to talk about it really briefly. This card's fantastic. The effect... So here, let's read it, right? Look, it's Shane's face. I'm sorry, Shane's face. You said fantastic, and he went like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Oh. I, I, Shane, I think I can actually convince you, right? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I don't doubt it. It's it's a it's a spell effect on a land, right? Right. And it's a it's a very replaceable spell effect, right? This is draft chaff. It's it's two in a white discard. Ijanjo. Iganjo. It deals four damage to target attacker or blocking creature. It costs one less to activate for each legendary you control. Worth noting in a deck like this, where you have reality chip as a legendary as well as Lavinia is a legendary, as well as Shadow Spear is a legendary, I was frequently able to line it up if I had it like later in the game where I didn't need it to use Iconjo for mana, where I was just dealing four damage for a single white. And because this is on a land, and because it sometimes just costs one mana, I actually think it's solid and kind of a great one-off to have in certain white decks. Because... If you need it for mana early, you just play it as an untapped white source. If you grab it on later, in something like Hammer, it makes your Shadow Spears actually a little bit more effective because that extra four damage you're dealing is four more points of damage that you're trampling past the creature to the opponent's face. So you wait for them to block, you hit them with Shadow, with, you know, Declare Blocker, then you hit it to get it out of the way, and then all the damage from Shadow Spear goes through instead of just some of it. So, yeah. Speaking of Shadow Spear, I don't want the legions of angry emails uh legendary creatures reduce it not legendary cards so shadow spear would not reduce the cost of a ganjo mm, good catch but i do appreciate that there are those other legendary options here thanks for checking that yeah always looking out shane looking out for the angry emails so you think this this is just good enough to have around or do you think it's good enough just in this particular deck or what do you think yeah, I mean, I think Iganjo is just good enough to have around, especially if you have like any legendary creatures. It gets 
better with each legendary creature that's just in your deck. I think the blue-white version is probably just going to push out any remnants of the red-white hammer deck that we see every once in a while, but barely ever, right? Like, where Magnetic Theft is a nice mirror breaker where you're, you know, manipulating your opponent's equipments, you're not really getting that much else out of the red-white version right now. And I think this blue one provides enough different tools to the black one, the black-white version of, of Hammer, that... There's a case to be made for when and where you would rather play like a handful of spell pierces and a Lavinia and some reality chips. So, guys, I'm going to give it a sleep. Okay, there you go. All right, we have another whole format to talk about with a lim- little amount of time. Yeah, I, I stand with all these other crappy decks out of the way. Can we talk about the deck everyone actually wants to hear you spill the beans on? Is it Pioneer and Soul Artifact? Oh, it's Pioneer and Soul Artifact. All right, yeah. I'll, I'll, I can talk about this one briefly. There's a little bit of overlap with it because it also plays Igonjo, and I'm not going to revisit that one. But this deck, I got to play with three other new cards. Those are Michiko's Reign of Truth, Eater of Virtues, and March of Otherworldly Light. And it very quickly did well in the weekend's Pioneer Challenges as well. So that's I, I grabbed the deck I played from the second place deck um in i, I want to say it was the saturday challenge maybe the sunday stan so were you not playing patchwork automaton no oh i'm surprised i saw that in some pioneer list i played this week and that was it was good I, i'm sure it was maybe by the time that people started adopting in the deck like it just didn't percolate and i grabbed an earlier version sure all right so michiko's reign of truth this is a one and a white for a saga chapters one and two read Target creature gets plus one, plus one until end of turn for each artifact and or enchantment you control. And then chapter three turns it into Portrait of Michiko, which is an enchantment creature that is a zero, zero, but it gets plus one, plus one for each artifact and or enchantment you control. Okay. So far, so good. Yep. This card's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We really bricked on this card. We should have seen it. I think it basically replaces all that glitters. So that even though all that glitters sticks around, it's an aura, you don't have to you know, keep doing it every turn, and then you stop getting that effect because the saga turns into a creature. This being a fast aggro deck, just doing it once or twice, and then having a creature that sticks around, I think actually is better than the potential two-for-one that can occur if you're trying to attach all that glitters to a creature. Yeah, I think it's way better than all the glitters. Not just because of the aura problem, but also because you can pick which creature you want to put it on. So if you don't have something with evasion one turn and the next turn you do, you can switch what it's on on those first two chapters. You know, it's not as exposed to creature kill until chapter three. It's just, I think it's way, way better. Yeah. And then Portrait of Michiko ends up being a huge creature too. Yeah. In a deck like in Soul, at least, where you have a ton of artifacts it by itself is sometimes like a 5-5 five, five or bigger. So it's it's like putting an insole artifact on a creature, but you're just using one card. Yeah, the rate on this is is bonkers good, right? Like it's it's it does exactly what you want a card like this to do and it but does does not feel like win more. Like it plays into exactly what the strategy that you're trying to accomplish is and if much like something like all that glitters, if you don't have a creature for it, you're losing already. So it's just like like you said, it's almost it's almost strictly better, and then gives you a creature on the, at the back half of it, which is just an incredible failsafe, and at least gives you something to start equipping other auras onto or something like that. Yeah, and 
the other nice thing about this card is that it's not even legendary, so it's good in multiples, assuming you have a creature to suit up. That said, it can be a little awkward in the face of removal. So let's say you're threat light and you're only playing with one or two creatures on the board that you're trying to suit up with your insole package. With Michigo's trigger on the stack, if your opponent removes your creature that you're targeting with it, not only do you not get that effect, but the plus one plus one is not a may ability. So you actually have to give it to an opponent's creature if they have something on the board, which, you know, on your turn doesn't really amount to much because that buff doesn't last till their turn, but right. still, maybe you just don't attack annoying. that or whatever. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Like now you maybe can't attack with something else. Similar to the point I made with Igonjo and Hammer, this pairs really nicely with creatures carrying Shadow Spear too, right? Where if you have a Shadow Spear on something and you give it plus four, plus four or more, you're just connecting for a ton of damage. In this deck, playing Ornithopters, sometimes that's enough to just like do a couple big hits with an Ornithopter. You're gaining some life in the process. Bada bing, bada boom. Yeah, I played against this deck. I played a Pioneer League with a uh, a burn based deck that I don't think I have time to talk about this week. But yeah, I played. It's very popular right now, and it feels really good. Like the Black Staff of Waterdeep from Adventures in the Forgotten Realms is a nice addition to this deck. It just adds redundancy to the in soul concept. Michiko's is really good. Uh, it's yeah, it feels. It feels incredible. Portable Hole is a really nice addition to the deck for its removal suite. And I think it's feeling incredibly strong. And it's it's quite popular as well. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Another new card I got to play with in this deck is Eater of Virtues. So this is a single white for a legendary artifact equipment. Equipped creature gets plus two plus zero. It's equip one. It also has a ton of other text that isn't super relevant. But basically when it very... Whenever an equipped creature dies, you exile it. And if the equipped creature that was wearing or using Eater of, of Virtues had like flying or some other keyword ability, whatever you attach Eater of Virtues to in the future has all those keywords that the exiled creatures had. Yeah, and let's say in your in your deck, you can have Flying from an Ornithopter. You can have Reach and Trample from Stone Coil Serpent. You can have Lifelink from Alcide of Life's Bounty. You can have Haste from Ginger Brute. So it's, it's not like there aren't creatures with the abilities in here it's just it still seems like it probably doesn't come up that much but hey maybe you can make it happen yeah i mean that's not what you're playing this for i think you're playing this because it's equip one and it ends up just being like extra copies of ghost fireblade which is the plus two plus two equip one to a colorless creature and the fact that this is legendary makes it discount iganjo oh no oh no it doesn't because nope, iganjo work. only works yeah. with creatures never mind yep. we'll we'll learn that one day so yeah this card is fine in an insole type strategy Maybe maybe in other like super low to the ground equipment based decks where the equip one matters, not like hammer per se, because I don't think you need to replace hammer or, or supplement it with with equipments like this. But maybe if an is it in soul deck ever emerges, the fact that this is potentially free off that gold two two flyer might make it good enough too. Yeah, sweet. Right. Last card that I want to talk about in this deck is March of Otherworldly Light. Not an artifact, it's just a removal spell. But I was really impressed with it. It's not Prismatic Ending, and I wish it was, because Prismatic Ending tags Planeswalkers, and there is a couple situations against Blue-White Control where I really wish I could have killed a Teferi. But the fact that it removes creatures and artifacts and enchantments made it versatile enough that it can actually deal with like a number of problematic permanents that my opponents had. Though more often than not, I was dealing with other creatures. 
Oh, you were playing Pioneer, so that makes sense. That's yeah. right, yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it scales nicely with the game. The fact that pitching white cards, like maybe you don't need that portable hole because you're using March of Otherworldly Light on whatever you're removing and your opponent's creatures are three CMC or more. You know, the fact that portable hole or whatever you're pitching to it actually counts towards two mana in the X, I think it was actually a little bit stronger than it may I may have expected it to be when I was first evaluating this card. I like it. I mean, this might be good enough to replace Chain to the Rocks in Pioneer as a Pioneer removal spell. We'll see about that. But I think that this was actually good enough to be a a format staple wherever it's legal. Um, I I played against it, not with it, but against it in Historic as well. And it just a couple times. The fact that it's an instant speed kind of just wrecked me. I still think there's a chance that this card could pop up in modern because it's so good against Urza Saga. Yeah, for sure. Like, it's just unreal to be able to just throw that out there for a single mana and get rid of Urza Saga and other stuff as well. So, Stan, what's what's your grade on uh, is on, uh, Azorius and Soul? You know, I was not motivated to play Pioneer when we did our Pioneer episode. <laughs> I'm a little bit more motivated now. <laughs> Man, I, I like Pioneer. I played it this week. I don't think I'm going to talk about this deck even next week. It's kind of a throwaway. I think that we should keep an eye on that deck. Shane was playing Burn with reconfigured Ronin or whatever yeah. in it. Let's keep an Ronin. eye and see where it goes, where that goes. Shrapnel Blast plus that card. I want to try that deck and see if it's bad or not. I almost feel like we could fit another Sleeve Belief Heave next week as well. Oh, but let's we see where it goes. Definitely will. But before we get into the sign-off, though. We should talk about Hidetsuku Consumes All, right? Maybe next week. <laughs> Maybe next week. I mean, what, is it good? <laughs> I'm just going to, one sentence. I was playing Hammer Time. My black red midrange opponent played this against me, and I just lost on the spot. Yeah, I mean, you were playing against black red, black red midrange, and they cast it. So yeah, you're dead. Yeah, R. I was P, dead. Friend. This card, really good against Hammer. If, if you needed a tool against that deck, look at Hidetsuku Consumes All. Okay, let's. do you want to spend 90 seconds? I want to talk about one card that I think is a really cool engine piece, and that's Oni Cult Anvil. I played against an Oni Cult Anvil deck in Pioneer. It's a black and a red artifact. Whenever one or more artifacts you control leave the battlefield during your turn, create a 1-1 colorless construct. This ability triggers only once each turn. You can tap and sacrifice an artifact, not another artifact. Oni Cult Anvil deals one damage to each opponent. You gain one life. I played against like an Oni Cult Synergy deck with Experimental Synthesizer, another extremely interesting card as well. Uh, it really seemed to go off pretty effectively. It's like this combination of cheap costs. It can sac- Oni Cult can sacrifice itself. It has a drain gain element. It creates a body. Like you combine that with Synthesizer, it makes like this quick potential card advantage engine that also makes one ones. And like the constructs can attack and go wide, or they can sacrifice to Oni Cult to continue like this drain gain idea. I think it's like an interesting engine card that has potential in some pretty cool decks. I mean, it looks a little bit like Cat Oven. That's what I was looking at too. It's like Cat Oven in one card. Yeah, what's what's wild too is like it can sacrifice to itself. Um, so it makes stuff like like artifact removal not as good because like you're still getting value out of it. Like you can't, it's really hard to target any artifact <laughs> when you have Oni Cult Anvil out, much like it is when you have a witch oven, witch's oven. I mean, I, I think it's cool. I think we should consider playing that deck for, for another more, sleep more belief cool next stuff. week. 
Yeah. Yeah, but that's I mean that's something I noticed and I think that there might be something there. I don't know in what formats, but I think it's pretty cool. Guys, friendly reminder, I'm playing in the uh, Manager's Legacy Tournament on Saturday. Sweet. So, I, I, you know, I, I'd like to prepare for that. I, I may be a little less prepared no. <laughs> for Sleep, Believe, Me Fodder, unless you want to hear all about... Like, like you have to practice in Legacy? Come on. Find the Legacy deck that has a Neon Dynasty card in it. I mean, I'm probably just going to put Besaju into Elves. Call it a day. Okay, perfect. Let's, we'll talk about that. Let's talk about if Besaju is good in Legacy. Hell yeah. Take us out of here, Stan. That wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or just reach out to us in general, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or you can email the dive down at gmail.com. We got a really great email over the weekend about the Wandering Emperor. That was a fun read. Feel free to communicate with us. We're people too. You can even leave an audio message that could appear in a future episode of The Dive Down over at podinbox.com slash The Dive Down. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash The Dive Down. You can also support us while playing Magic Online with a Mana Trader subscription with promo code The Dive Down 2022, all one word. It gets you 15% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards. You can also use that promo code, The Dive Down 2022, over at Barrister and Man. For your beard care and other grooming needs, get 15% off your first order at Barrister and Man with the Dive Down 2022. Special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and play more Artifacts!